Welcome to Talk Dizzy to Me, the show that brings you a comprehensive look into the complex field of dizziness. Now here are your hosts, vestibular physical therapist, Dr. Abby Ross and Dr. Danielle Tate. Welcome back everyone to Talk Dizzy to Me. I'm Dr. Abby Ross, vestibular physical therapist and neuroclinical specialist, joined as always by Dr. Danny Tate, also a vestibular physical therapist. And today we are joined by a guest that you probably heard of on a prior episode when we had a young lady on who just raved about Dr. Kaiser. He's joining us from the state of Michigan. So Dr. Kaiser, if you don't mind, tell our audience a little bit about yourself and what brings you to talk dizzy to me. Sure. Um, yeah, so I, I practice here in beautiful Chelsea, Michigan, which is just outside of Ann Arbor, um, where the University of Michigan's at. And um, I have a specialty in functional neurology and I have a licensure as a chiropractor. So it's kind of a little different um, different avenue than other people would, would kind of go through. But we specialize here in seeing mostly people with different kind of neurological, excuse me, neurological conditions. Uh, we see people from all over the world, which is super fun. Um, people fly in and stay in our, our little town and, and treat with us for a period of time. Um, and we get to see the whole scale. So we see everything from pro and Olympic athletes to um, people in government and people on the TV and, and the people next door. So it's a, it's a beautiful thing. So really happy to be here. Um, I know Sarah Renberg, who, if you haven't listened to or seen her, her podcast, I think that would be a good, how many, how many back are we Two back? I, I think so. She's a couple back from us. And also we should recommend that you go listen to Dr. Kaiser's um, episode on Sarah's own podcast, How to Student. Um, there was a lot I took away from that episode, not only just in, you know, patient recovery, but kind of things that I could apply to my own life and, and oh, how to awesome. approach things. Yeah, it was great. I'm super glad to hear that. That's great. <laughs> and Sarah's episode actually ended up being one of our more popular episodes. We got a lot of feedback from a lot of vestibular patients that were experiencing a lot of similar trials and tribulations or had a similar path that she did. So she brought a lot of inspiration to a lot of people through That's her episode. Cool. I'm glad to hear that. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah happy to hear it. Sarah, if you listen to this one, I just had another clinician message me, text me this morning, or maybe it was yesterday morning, the days blend together. But she said, I'm listening to the episode with this awesome girl on your on your podcast. I'm so inspired. So you're very popular, Sarah. Look at that. <laughs> so why don't you explain a little bit about functional neurology, a kind of a little bit more deeper into your practice, um, some of the symptoms and diagnoses that you manage with your patients? Yeah, that's a good question. We should probably start there. Um, so as a functional neurologist, the, probably the easiest way to understand it um, would be similar to like most people would understand if you go to a neurologist, usually um, we're trying to diagnose that's something that's wrong in your brain. And in, in, in a medical neurologist scenario, um, we're typically looking at a CT or an MRI or an EEG, and we're trying to find a focal area within the brain that's not doing well. And we can usually see that, whether it's a stroke or epileptiform activity or something growing in your brain. Um, but we also have injuries in the brain that don't necessarily have full-on like bleeding in the brain, or they don't have you know, big old tumor nugget grown in there or epileptiform activity. Um, we have things where we have errors, but they're, um, they're sub-imaging errors and we still have to be able to find them. And that's really what, what we do as functional neurologists is we're looking at that same localization, that same um, 
kind of attention to detail and finding what's wrong in a certain area or triangulating an area of the brain where there's a problem. Um, but we're looking at it at a, at a functional level. So we are watching biomarkers and looking at how people move and how they express their, um, their sensory system and how all those things tie together through the integration of the brain. Um, so it allows us to be able to, rather than um, just kind of hook the computer up to the car and see what the codes say, we take it for a ride and we figure out like where are the errors happening? Um, you know, when someone goes to move their hand, does it move normally or does it have a tremor or an error with the way that it moves? If we watch people walk, do they walk the way we would expect them to walk or do they have errors? And all these things, when they add up, point us uh, in the direction of where we wanna see in the brain where the problem is. And that gives us a window to say, all right, well, how can we then apply the things that we know from all sorts of different pockets in healthcare, which is beautiful to be able to say, okay, how do we use vestibular therapy in this instance to be able to stimulate the brain? Or how do we use vision therapy? Or how do we use PT or whatever the thing is, whatever the tool is that we want to use, how do we use that to then stimulate the brain rather than, um, you know, just kind of hoping that we, we manage to hit it through some um, schematic of, of therapeutic application. Which we, we do a lot in our approach with patients as vestibular physical therapists. You know, we can't rely on a lot of imaging. And a lot of times vestibular patients, when they go see their doctors and they come back with MRIs or things along those lines, they don't show anything on the scans. These patients come back with a lot of clean um, imaging or tests and they come to us and they go, but I know something's wrong. You know, what do we do about it? So we're, we kind of take a similar approach in that aspect where we look at things holistically and figure out how do we make this function better? How do we make the patient less symptomatic and get them moving throughout their day normally without having quite a, a great clue or a window into what's going on? Yeah, that's real. And I think that you probably see a similar thing and probably some of your listeners can can resonate with the fact that like sometimes you want there to be something that you find in the MRI, um, just so you know. And um you know, I always find myself saying, hey, this is great news. There's nothing here. That means it's something that we can approach um, kind of a, from a more holistic level. Can we can we rehab it? Can we get it back to function? And I'm sure that that's probably something you experience all the time. Oh, I can't tell you how many patients come and say, I just wish I had cancer, or I just wish there was a brain tumor. I wish there was something there that we could diagnose and treat and be done with because they go from doctor to doctor to doctor trying to get explanations or figure out what's going on. And it's so frustrating when they don't get to that end point and they just start living with their symptoms chronically, um, which creates a whole other host of issues, right? Yeah. Well, and, and it really, you know, that's the message of rehab really, um, is necessary because um, it helps give these folks their life back in a, in a in a huge way. So I'm super happy you guys are sharing that. Yeah, this conversation reminds me a little bit of the hashtag you see all over when it comes to these types of symptoms or issues, and that's that this is an invisible illness. These symptoms are often correlated to invisible illnesses, and it kind of extrapolates to also an imaging, right? This maybe the imaging shows nothing, it's negative. There's still something happening. And that's where Dr. Kaiser, it sounds like you definitely come into play. I love the car analogy. You can take the codes, but we actually get in the car and see how see what's happening during the ride itself. Mm -hmm. um, now question, are all functional neurologists chiropractors or do some have other medical degrees? Yeah, that's a good question. So. Um, the short answer is no, it's open to kind of any allied health professional that, that kind of chooses that path of study. 
it is, um, I think it resonates with people that are used to kind of a, a holistic background, um, which is why I think it trends that way. And then the person, Dr. Carrick, who kind of founded the, the specialty is a, is a chiropractor by training. Um, but he's also collaborated. I mean, he's right now he's working at Harvard and Cambridge in the lab and doing some beautiful things there. Um, so de definitely a multidisciplinary tool. It's really, uh, it comes down more to a, to just a, a more depth of view into how we diagnose things to the brain. Um, but that applies across different modalities, whether you're an OT, a PT, a DO, an MD, um, the, the applications are more in the, the kind of diagnostic process. Mm -hmm. I'd ask that though. That's a great question. Yeah, you know, functional neurology is something I've been trying to learn more about because I have had several clients see functional neurologists and I've gotten a widespread of um, reports from functional neurology in terms of what they did, what they found, what they recommended. So I'm really curious to learn more about your practice and uh, really what your scope is. What is what is your specialty? What types of patients are most often coming to see you? Yeah, so I um, I have a, a different sort of practice as a kind of a tertiary specialist. So a lot of the people that come see me are actually on referral um, from other providers. Um, you know, I, I teach for the Kerrigan Institute, I teach functional neurology and clinical neurology. Um, so that's kind of my, my little niche in the world is I help kind of more complex cases that, um, that are kind of refractory to other, other methodologies. So that's where I live. Um, the people that come, it's vast. So a lot of them are people that have had head injuries and concussions because um, that translates really well. But I also see a lot of kids with neurobehavioral disorders um, different, the different arrays of dizziness that you see that are multifactorial. You, I mean, they don't all come from one place. Um, and then I see a large contingent of people, um, because of the specialty that I have with the autonomic system. So I see uh, an array of people that have different syndromes like, uh, postural orthostatic tachycardia, which I'm sure you guys are seeing, um, across the board to kind of vasovagal syncopes and neurocardiogenic syncopes and, and these uh, conditions where we have kind of faults that start to occur in the brain and over time they progress into different sorts of secondary disorders that affect people's ability to stand up. Like they stand up and feel real dizzy. Their heart rate can fly out of the ceiling. They start beating real fast, lightheaded, short of breath. All these things that tend to happen once head injuries kind of move into a chronic phase um, or, or viral, you know, we're in, we're in the time of COVID. So these kind of viral instances as they, as they go and progress and become chronic, um, we see these autonomic syndromes. And that's, that's kind of a place where I spend a lot of time. I think um, the first day I saw Sarah uh, when she came into the clinic up in Maryland, um, you know, taking her history and going through her evaluation, there was a lot a lot to take in there, um, which was a little bit uh, nerve-wracking in the beginning, to be honest, because um, I don't have many patients at the time that were quite like her. Could you go into a little bit about uh, vestibular um, auto uh, dysautonomia and um, other types of presentations like POTS for clinicians? Like, what can they expect to see from these patients? Yeah, that's, so if we look at it from a clinician perspective, um, to kind of go a little bit into the weeds, but not too far. Um, we would really look at these points of integration that we have. So as you guys know, 
we're kind of sensory bound creatures. Um, without the senses of our world, there's not much for us to go on. You know, we think about like a sensory deprivation chamber drives people nuts over time or it like cools them down if they're overdone, right? But um, so we kind of rely on those senses, but we don't, we don't really, um, we don't really use them independently. We use them together. So like if you're taking a big old bite of pizza or having a nice glass of wine, it tastes brilliant, but part of the reason it tastes brilliant is because you can smell it, right? When we lose our sense of smell, our taste becomes muted. And we can kind of think of the same thing when we think about, you know, our ability to feel with our, our skin and know where our joints are in space and then to be able to orient our head through different reference points, um, you know, to be able to understand where the joints in our neck are and how that compares with where we view a horizontal, like when you look out into the horizon, where's the flatness of the earth and where's vertical. And then we also compare that to the interpretation that we get in our vestibular system, whether that's through kind of the angular acceleration in the labyrinth or our graviceptive pull back to the earth that we get from gravity. Um, so when we think about all of those sensory things, they all integrate, which is beautiful. So they're not really independent. And the way I, I, I talk to a lot of people about it is to think about when you move your hand or when you go to reach for something, um, it's not really a hand movement. It's a shoulder and an elbow and a hand and fingers, and it all works as one. And when we think about the way we move, we're really just moving to carry this noggin of ours around and everything is built to be able to kind of set this at, at calibration. So our proprioceptive system and our visual system and our vestibular system that you guys talk about brilliantly are all wired together. Um, so when we look at a case like that and understanding that we have errors that can occur in the actual integration. So we may have an inner ear that you go get a caloric done or you do you know, a barony chair and everything's beautiful. That inner ear is fine but they don't feel fine or they don't operate fine. And then we start to see like their eyes do all sorts of crazy stuff and their neck is killing them and they tilt their head funny and all these things. And you realize that it's not an error in the senses, it's in how it's being interpreted in that integration center. And that's super useful because we can dial in to very specific places, whether it's in the brainstem or in the cortex or in the cerebellum to understand where that error is. And then we can use that sensory system to kind of spin it back and say, we're going to use the sensory system to rehab that part of the brain rather than saying, you know, kind of just operating where sometimes we do where we, we do the algorithm of PT or we do the algorithm of vision therapy and say, we hope this is going to work because you got eye stuff. or We hope this is going to work because you got ear stuff. But rather thinking about it, like, let's dive in there. So if we think about that from an integration perspective, and then we apply that to the autonomic system. The job of the autonomic system is just to deliver fuel and keep us at homeostasis, to keep everything balanced, to take it off our conscious plate so we don't have to think about it. And that really makes makes us rely on that system operating effectively with our senses. Um, so where that happens in the midline of the brainstem shares a lot of corollaries with what we see with integration from the inner ear, um, with integration from uh, our proprioceptive system, even from our visual system, but even our, our kind of our default and um, our default mode where we think about you know that that uh, that processing area in our brain, how how that back a little bit. But um, yeah, so anywhere that needs oxygen has to be connected to the autonomic system. Um, so anywhere that can be injured within the brain is connected to the autonomic system. So we're going to be able to see little changes in how 
our blood pressure works and in how our vascular system works and how are we sweat or the dilation of our pupils and all these little clues give us um, give us the ability to see not only where things are happening in the brain, which is super, super cool, um, but it also tells us what the capacity is. So you know this, but you'll see people that may have a very similar looking injury where one person can just like do whatever you give them and they're, they do pretty well. And some people it's like, I can give them one thing and then they are laying on the floor. And we look at these capacities in this autonomic system, it gives us a really brilliant way to be able to gauge what someone's capacity level is and gives us like a real time marker to look at. So if I'm watching someone and we're doing, you know, just like a simple VR maneuver and all of a sudden I notice when they turn their head to the left, that pupil dilates. I know that we've exceeded that capacity. So I have to do something different. I can't just continue to do that thing or I'm just going to blow that pathway out of the water. Um, so when we think about dysautonomia as like a clinical entity, like I feel terrible and my heart rate is real high, that's to a point where it's gotten so noticeable that like I can, I can feel it versus like just being able to pick up little nuances in the clinic. Um, and I think that being able to use those is super, super helpful. Yeah, I think a lot of clinicians are surprised when they have a lot of their vestibular patients have, uh, it looks like blood pressure issues, or all of a sudden they get that racing heart during mm -hmm. some of their exercises, um, or that the vestibular system itself is is affecting um, their blood pressure, their heart rate, and how they're feeling. You know, when they kind of get started treating patients, they go, well, I'm not sure if this should be happening, or is that really connected? But there's a lot of input that ties everything together. And that's where individualized care is so important when it comes to working with this patient population because what one person can do is going to be completely different from another person. And there's times where we might do an exercise with a patient where you can maybe tolerate 30 seconds and then we need to sit down and work on some grounding, relaxation, deep breathing mm -hmm. techniques, and try to find a different way to approach this without exerting that patient or overexerting that patient. Mm -hmm. So it's crazy how you're right. This all ties together and having a better idea of how that all comes together and how to manage that is so, so, so important. And that's where people like you get all these great referrals because we need more training. We need more people that know what's going on with our bodies and how everything ties together. It's it's really fascinating. Well, that's super kind of you to say. And I think it's, um, I, I, I'm lucky enough where I get to speak to people from all sorts of different disciplines, um, which is super fun for me. And I get really excited because I get to see all these people that have brilliant specialties and talents, you know, and they're able to, if we can say, hey, did you think about like I know capacity or the ability to, to like do the exercise is always the razor's wire. And that's even in like, if you're training Olympians, right? Because if you overdo it, then we lose time. Um, so if we think about from the brain, you're thinking about like, man, there's this fine line between neuroplastic long-term potentiation and like uh, apoptosis, right? So we actually kill cells. So that fine line applies to like all of us. So being able to understand that fine line, I think is a tool like just for everybody. So I get super excited to talk about it and to share. And I just think um, just giving that one little piece to everyone else's talent um, really helps them be like virtuosos within their own, their own discipline and it helps them stand out, which is great. It's not no pain, no gain when it comes to vestibular therapy. You do too much and you're going to set yourself back. I think you're right. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> Very true. So tell us a little bit then what your initial session with a patient or client would look like. What types of tests and measures are you doing? What sort of evaluation techniques are included? 
Yeah. So the biggest thing that I am doing to get kind of my bearings with a, with a case is in my physical exam. So I'm looking at things that normal, um, normal medical neurologists would look at, but I'm looking at um, the subtleties of that. So for example, you know, if someone's going to touch their nose, you know, in the medical neurology, we may be thinking like, oh man, that's kind of what we're looking for. But I'm looking for like these little subtle ones or what happens if like, are they fine in this context? But as soon as I have them think and do it, do they break down? Or if I have them turn their head and do it, do they break down? Or if I have them stand up? So I'm looking at, like I said, taking it for a test drive. But then that's really hard for patients to be able to, to embody, for me to say, oh yeah, I did this in your eyes, did this funny thing. And they're like, I don't know what, what that means. So we use, um, just some kind of very simple things that, that is, are available to everyone. We use video oculography to record and look at eye movements so we can measure them. So we're not, so we're actually, we're measuring, we're using metric units to be able to track and say like, all right, so if I lose gaze at four degrees or six degrees and I'm getting square wave jerk amplitudes of, you know, of, of one degree and they're happening at a frequency of once per second. And then we can use that as a marker to say, can we do our thing and find that, their gaze amplitude gets bigger and their square wave jerk count goes down and their eyes become more stable. And we use that as a measurement tool. Um, so I like, I like VOG a lot. I think it's my favorite. I like it better than a lot of the eye tracking. Um, can I ask what system you use? Can I, I just want to nerd out a little bit. What system are yeah, you using for your- My um, favorite your one is, I have a couple. My favorite one, I'm going to get in trouble. But my favorite one is the micromedical unit. Um, okay, is that the visual eyes or is that the original one with the monocular view and the camera? I, you got to use a binocular because okay. as you know, you got to be able to see those little tropias and phorias that are happening mm -hmm. in different pupillary changes. So I like a binocular one. Is, I that, think, the, is um, that the visualize of the glass tabs or is it with two individual cameras? It's the glass tabs and then okay. the cameras come from the top yep. okay. and they project down. And then I also have a pair from neuro, uh, neurokinetics. You see over here, um, they have a really great one too. Very similar model. I actually have one of those hooked. So I have a, I have like, crazy vestibular chair. You guys should come nerd out about it. Um, so I have a chair that's like a, a combination whole body rotation chair. So in the vertical axis and then in the, the yaw axis, and then also we can do a level, a measure of, um, so we can turn people and do it roll, which is pretty cool. And then we can move it eccentrically so I can isolate over one ear so I can put the, the axis point I can move it over four centimeters and drop it right on that ear. So I'm getting a centrifugal thing. Um, it's got, array on it so that I can do VOG in it and it's got calorics in it. It's, it's way too fancy, but um, it's super cool. But that one, I have a neurokinetics unit that's in that. And I actually use that one when people are rotating and we're doing therapeutic things so I can watch exactly what's going on in their eye and I can capture it. So I have those ones. We use some, um, we use some eye tracking. I like to see, so for me, this is getting super nerdy. So I apologize if anybody needs to go to the bathroom, this is a moment, but, um, but it's super helpful because that's becoming a very popular way to do it because we can really simplify things for people. Um, but I don't like it because we can't calibrate based on any video recording. So when I look at my VOG software, I can see their eyes on the camera and then I can look at the tracing that we have. So I can see if there's any artifact or if like, all of a sudden it's not rendering my pupil, it's rendering an eyelash or something like that. You're not so relying on the software, you're know, relying on your, your visual, yeah. So I can visually interpret it and then we can, we can have something to show people to be able to say, here's our metric, here's where we're starting out, our baseline, 
can we improve on this? Um, so that's my personal preference um, with a lot of eye tracking software. We just don't have the video. So I don't know if it's tracking what it says it's tracking or not. So yeah, I'm just curious. I, we get a, we get a lot of questions from um, different clinicians about what they use, and I I'll keep I like to to trial all different types of them. So I'm just I'm nerding out and curious at, at what you use because it is becoming something that's becoming very popular, especially with the addition of V Hit, and it's yeah. becoming more affordable. Um, so I think it's it's really exciting that more people can get into this specialty and be able to afford the equipment in order to help patients. But okay, Which I'll stop nerding out. Let's let's keep going. Yeah, and we use uh, we use a caps force plate for posturography, um, which is the best. Uh, I know the standard is um, is using a Neurocom. We've kind of learned that that's not the thing because we've got this, um, this kind of remembered aspect of being in. So when we're in the cage, right, or we're suspended in the harness, we operate differently. It's kind of like, you know, when you close your eyes and you know there's a chair over here, you're more likely to fall toward the chair. So it changes our center of pressure readings. So what we do is we use a CAPS unit that's just on the floor and it measures our posture and our sway um, parameters and on, on you know, Z axis and, and X and Y, but we put it in the middle of the floor so there's nowhere to go. So we're seeing a true variable of when I turn my head, am I actually pitching this way or I just freak out and reach toward the wall? Um, so that's super helpful. And then um, we use, like I said, I have that chair that we use. I like to use pupillometry. Um, great app for anyone that's that's diving into pupillometry is have you guys used the reflex app not yet it's amazing um i have like the expensive one you you put up that you have in the hospital um i have one of those and it's in a drawer because i like the app better it runs through my um through my phone and you can you can it just uses the light from your phone dials you right in and then you can get an actual waveform of what's happening with your pupil oh interesting technology i really like it a lot um, it's called reflex it's called a reflex app. It's, a, it's on, I use an iPhone, so it's on iOS. I don't know if we're outside iPhone, I'm not very helpful. <laughs> so, but yeah, I, I like to use those. And then from there, it's just like good old fashioned, um, you know, neurological testing equipment and using, you know, we use some neurooptometry stuff with Maddox rods and some different things. Um, but uh, otherwise it's stethoscopes and reflex hammers and pinwheels and all the good stuff. So very objective. You like to get a lot of data in order to compare and track your patients as they go through recovery, not only subjectively, but also objectively with what you collect. Yeah, we got to know if it's working fast, right? So if you're if you're thinking about brain and you're thinking about neurons, like the half-life growth of a neuron is super, super fast. We're in the millisecond range, right? Um, so we should know pretty quickly if we're, if we're trending in the right direction. And if we're not, then we either have to change something or not do it, right? So um, that's a big part of what we do is, is kind of that proof of concept is making sure, you know, this is what we found, here is what we think will stimulate that area the best within that metabolic capacity. Um, and then we put it to the test. And if it works, then we'll see a change in our diagnostic tools. If it's not working, then we gotta do something different. And I think um, it's humbling sometimes because sometimes you don't nail it the first time. But I think it's super useful. And I think it's the right thing to do for people rather than getting, um, you know, down the line and going, I don't know, I hoped it would, I hoped it would be better. Um, so, I, you know, we want to make sure that we have as many things that we can put metrics to help people out. And, and it also gives them, you know, the same way you mentioned, they would rather have cancer just to know, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's super useful 
to say like, hey, you see this picture where your eyes should be still? You see how they're whipping around like that? And people are like, wow, I didn't know they were doing that because we don't, we can't see it. Um, so just being able to orient to it and be like, you're not crazy, like, this is a real thing is super, super helpful for people. So I find that um, is as useful as anything just to be able to show you what we're looking at. Um, Absolutely. I mean, even with patients, I, I use videos all the time. I record every session with mm -hmm. my patients when I do ocula uh, the um, infrared goggles. Um, and it, I find it helpful, too, to bring in spouses. You know, there's a lot of time where family members or spouses, they you don't get it until you get it. Yep. And I'll, I'll bring back their spouses to, to watch their evaluation and they'll watch their loved one's eyeball bounce off the screen. And they're like, what are you doing to my wife? Mm -hmm. It's like, no, this is what she feels every time she's dizzy. She's not making this up. This is real. This is what happens. And all of a sudden it kind of brings in this new level of understanding and compassion and sympathy, not only for them, but validation for the patient that this is not in their head, yep. which a lot of times they think that, oh, maybe... I'm making this up. Maybe I'm distressed. Maybe there is something wrong with me and I'm just overplaying this. And, you know, I think having that objective data is huge for patient education, but also making sure you show patients that they're getting better. A lot of times patients with vestibular dysfunction don't feel like they're making progress. Mm. Um, they don't they don't celebrate the small wins. They don't notice when things are slowly trending better. And it's not until you really challenge them in the clinic or show them some objective data that's significantly better than it was at baseline that they go, oh, yeah, I do. I was able to bend over earlier today and not feel like I was going to fall over and it starts to click into place. So that kind of information and those tests and those diagnostics that are super duper important for just getting people into recovery and feeling better. And it's good to have a scorecard, right? So if you're, you know, if you're, if you're good at something you want, you know, you kind of want to keep score, right? If you're a good basketball player, you want to keep score. Um, and I think that that's okay. I think that that helps keep you um, on track for people and rather than just kind of showing up and going through the motions, but like, it's good to, to know when you miss mm -hmm. so you can figure out how to hit it next time. And I think that yeah. part's super useful too. That's you're Sarah Runberg for you. <laughs> super competitive. <laughs> You're saying something that I think is so important for our patient audience to hear again, and that is that you want to find a clinician or a healthcare provider who's willing to be flexible in their approach. It's going to be a winding road, a dead end with a detour versus just the same highway every single time with every single patient. And I think people who aren't, or providers who aren't really in the thick of the complexity of the vestibular system and vestibular disorders, concussion, whatever it may be, they don't always realize when to take that detour, when to reroute the intervention plan and, and go another way. So I really like that you said that. And I always tell people that call me from other places that I can't see because I'm not licensed in those places, find a clinician who's willing to do that. That mm -hmm. right there is key. Yeah, that's good advice. That's really good. Um, go ahead, Danny. Oh, I was going to say, I want to talk about uh, the new book that you came out with, Concussion Discussions, because I know you do work a lot with concussions, and I want you to kind of elaborate on what's in that book, what kind of advice you have to offer, you know, what's coming out of that. Yeah, so that book is a, is a compilation book we did with, um, with Amy Zelmer, and it's beautiful because it's, it's a bunch of different clinicians, which I really value because everybody's got I mean, you know how it is. Everybody's got a little thing that just grabs them differently and can, can suck them in. And the more we can bring that together, the faster we all learn. You know, if it takes me 20 hours to learn something and I can give it to you in 20 minutes and it takes you five minutes, 
we go so much faster and then I get it the same from you. And then we realize like this whole thing happens. So that's what kind of what this book was, was a, it was an opportunity to kind of share some patient stories, um, but to use them almost um, as ways to talk about systems in the brain, which is, which is super fun. So my, my little, um, my small contribution was through the autonomic system, like we talked about looking at concussion and dysautonomias uh, and kind of telling stories to help people understand. Cause I think a lot of people, um, that's one that people struggle with as far as like, you don't feel good. And a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of people, even more than just in the concussion world, but I think it's even more dialed in when you look at uh, people with autonomic problems, they're like, they are, very marginalized group there. It is very much a um, anxiety diagnosis or, um, you know, popped immediately on, you know, on a beta blocker or something like that. When these are not first line therapies, um, you know, even the research on it says like, this isn't the first line therapy. It should be done like as a, me- as a measure to support an active rehab strategy. Right. Um, so that's kind of what we talk about in that book. And it's just a, a fun way to be able to share that. And then, uh, and we kind of, I think, book that Sarah talks about um, is another one that I wrote kind of during the COVID part talking. It's kind of the same thing, but more stories. And I am, I will be completely honest, just dead stuck in editing right now. Um, so I don't know when that one will come out. <laughs> so looking forward to reading both. Uh, I'm really looking forward to that just because concussion is something, you know, I, I get pulled more into the vestibular side of things and not so much the concussion side of things, but there's big overlap. And I know I, I'm going to see more concussion patients and having something like that is extremely useful to just continue to add to my toolbox and continue to learn from. So that's amazing to hear about. Um, we're really excited. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, that central vestibulopathy overlap is, is just huge. Um, mm-hmm. And especially as they become chronic, um, that integration system is, you know, it's the one, it's the thing. I mean, you think about like our relationship with gravity is kind of like the baseline for everything. And if that gets screwed up, um, where do you go from there? You know? Yeah, exactly. Let's dive into concussion a little bit more, you know, has or has your approach to the treatment of patients with symptoms associated with concussion changed at all since you started practicing or what does it currently look like just in general terms? Hmm. I'm not sure. I I mean, since I first started, it's like a whole different world, Um, which I think is good. I I think, um, you know, my mentor, Dr. Carrick, I talked about before, always is like, has always said, I really hope that I'm not doing the same thing next year that I'm doing this year. Um, and man, that I think we should all live by that. Maybe not even just in our clinical lives, but in our regular lives. Um, but yeah, so when we think about concussions, we're really thinking about these multi-sensory, multi-motor um, kind of contextual dysfunctions that happen in the brain. And how do we, how do we, I think the question that we're trying to answer now is how do we intervene quicker? How do we get them to people so we're not waiting a year or two years to recognize that this is not getting better? Um, and I think that's that's kind of the flag that that we're carrying right now is trying to figure out how do we how do we get into that continuum earlier so that these things don't become chronic and you know steal steal years out of people's lives. Mm-hmm. And again, you just touched on the fact that the clinician needs to be malleable, right? They need to recognize what does work, what doesn't work, and be flexible in changing the approach. 
Yeah. I say to people all the time that I am a thief and I am, I am a proud thief because I read everybody else's papers and I look at what everybody else does. And I try to figure out how does that fit through this model of how we're looking at the world. And uh, so I'm super happy that people come up with new things and I, I'm glad to be able to take them. And I will always, I'll give you credit all day, but I'm going to steal it if it's good. Well, even the, the content that you put together, I like following you on social media and some of the ideas that you come up with treatment sessions or things that you're doing with patients. Because I look at that and I go, oh, like that, we do that with balloons, but we can progress that by making that a little bit tougher by using a tennis ball or a golf ball or, you know, decreasing your target size. Like, I love looking at your stuff and seeing what you're doing with patients. And then also just staying up to date on research. Concussion research has changed I mean, almost an entire 180 in the last couple of years, mm -hmm. um, just based on what they're finding. So it's something that you got to stay on top of. And it's hard to stay on top of. We rely on each other to be like, oh, look at this new article or look what just mm -hmm. came out here or Twitter, even just following all the research updates on there. It's uh, it's super helpful when other people share their ideas and what their takeaways are from new research, because it cuts down on our time of having to read through study after study after study after study. Yeah, absolutely. It's really and it's really fun to see it trending toward the things that we kind of that that we knew to be true but hadn't been we hadn't been told they were true yet do you know what i mean mm -hmm. um, so those things are it's super fun to see it going that way and to see um things that used to be I, i'm not super old yet but even in my career the things early on in the career that people people were like that's crazy are now normal mm -hmm. um so that is very, very fun to see. And I can't wait. I can't wait to get old and look back and be like, <laughs> we were just archaic um, with the things that we were doing. And that's what I'm hoping for is that, is that we just keep helping people get better and that younger people come in with new ideas. And I, I hope that, that it just keeps trending that way. Yeah. You know, we interviewed Dr. Sue Whitney a few weeks ago and it was so interesting to hear her speak about how, when she first started treating people with vestibular dysfunction, there was, I think, six papers or some, it was under 10. I can't remember the exact number. Mm -hmm. Think about all the information that we've gathered in the last 30, 40 years is incredible. And just think about all the information we have yet to gather and interpret and implement into our practice. I think even in 10 years, we'll be looking at how we treat right now and think, wow, I, I don't know what I was doing. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's for sure. I mean, I've been doing it 11 years now and it's like a different, different world, which is super cool. And then we're learning like the ability to get into the brain is so much cooler. Um, you know, looking at lactate, th lactate thresholds and looking at lactate shuttles and how like we might not even be using oxygen the way we thought we were. And then, then you're like going, oh, man, I hope all those fMRI studies are still valid. And, you know, so I think it's, I think it's beautiful. Yeah, just to kind of look at that and see, you know, it, it's it's hard to imagine taking what we know is what we think is concrete and then turning on its head potentially, you know, 10, 20, 30 years down the road. But again, like Abby said, looking back to the beginnings of vestibular therapy, everybody thought John Epley was crazy with his idea of these crystals that move through the canals in your ears to make you, um, you know, to cause vertigo. And the fact now that you can't say vertigo without Epley maneuver in the same sentence in most doctor's offices is, is nuts. It's so true. it's yeah. it's exciting to see. Yeah, it's really neat. It's, uh, yeah, it's a good world to live in. And it's a good, I think the messaging to be able to to share with people is super important. Because, I mean, you know, just before we started talking, you know, we're looking at vestibulopathies that don't show up as vestibulopathies. They're, they're people that are, you know, fatigued and getting dizzy and their blood pressure is real low, but they don't feel, it's not, 
you know, they're not spinning, they're not, you know, they're not having disequilibrium or these things. But you realize, you know, you have them follow their eyes to one side and you watch them boom, just hit that big old bead of torsion. Um, even though fundoscopy, no torsion, no, you know, on occluded vision, no torsion, but you see that context change and boom, there it is. Um, you know, to be, and to be able to just change that context and have them go, oh, just for those moments, it's, it's just beautiful. So I love the applications and I can't wait to see, uh, to see where they go. Now, what other disciplines are you working closely with? Do you have additional disciplines within your specific clinic or are you just closely working with other people to create this multidisciplinary approach? Yeah, so I have some challenges on that because I see a lot of people that fly in. Um, so, you know, people come and spend a significant amount of time with me. Um, so I'll see them several times in a day over several days in a row. Um, mm-hmm. And then from there, we work on getting them back to wherever they're from. They'll have, you know, things just like anybody would where we put them on certain types of home programs, but we also have to have them follow up with people that are local. So usually, whether that's um, a PT that they really trust, whether that's an, uh, another functional neurologist, whether it's you know putting them back in touch with a medical neurologist, someone that's in functional medicine, because we've got to do some things in that world as well. Um, so we try to pull in, uh, we try to borrow brains wherever we can and be able, like, I, I believe it's good to have like a head chef, you don't want too many cooks in the kitchen, but, um, but to be able to pull people in to be able to be supportive is super helpful. So I'm, I'm a big proponent of, proponent of that. And I like to try to, to empower people to be able to, to work on that team. Um, and I usually have a lot of fun because we get to describe things in a way um, that maybe people haven't thought of. And it allows them to be able to go, oh, that makes a lot of sense. I'll do that. And then here's how we'll progress it. And it allows us to kind of work through that as a team. And, and I find that super enjoyable. Very cool. Yeah, absolutely. I I'm gonna have to do some research research to see if there's anyone like you around me. <laughs> I haven't heard of anyone yet. Okay. <laughs> How did you actually get into your current specialty? I, I have a feeling you're more on the rare end. <sighs> yeah, I yeah, I would say so. So how I got into it, I was actually in college, um, had everything set up to go into prosthetics and orthotics. I was going to make limbs. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, still do. Um, and then had a friend that got sick. And that was back, you know, that was back in the, the early early 2000s when the internet wasn't as, as robust as it is now. And I was searching on the internet trying to find some things to help. And I found a PBS documentary with Dr. Carrick and it highlighted these three cases that he saw. And so I ordered it. And you know, I had to like write a uh, like a cashier's check and like, send it, and they sent me a VHS and like the whole thing, and um, and so I watched that and I was like, this is amazing! Like we got to figure out how to do this. And he was a chiropractor. I'd never been to a chiropractor. I didn't know. I just knew like necks and backs. Like I had a friend who went, and that was the extent of what I knew. So I ended up following some people and kind of figuring that out. And then I went to school so that I could also do my neurology training at the same time. And, uh, and I did that and then went into practice and then was able, was fortunate enough to start teaching. And then I had this kind of Willy Wonka opportunity to go work with Dr. Carrick, which um, just made all the difference in the world for understanding uh, everything. And then from there, um, you know, have since kind of 
spread my wings, so to speak, you know, as an apprentice. So, yeah. The importance of having a mentor, you know, Abby oh, and I have both spoken, have, uh, spoke about this and having that person to kind of um, bounce ideas off of or thoughts off of and have their to have them there to lead you and kind of point you in the direction that they know that you're going to excel and do well in. But just to have that makes a huge difference and allows you to specialize and to get better at what you do. So we're very fortunate you had uh, Dr. Carrick there to kind of point you in the right direction. Sarah is very fortunate too. I'm sure she'd agree. Yeah, he's he's just a brilliant fellow and, and uh, like very much the most interesting man in the world kind of a, of a fellow. So he's, he's brilliant and anybody that gets a chance to meet him should. Um, but yeah, I'm super, super thankful for him. Awesome. So where can our listeners find you? Um, where can they find you on social media or website? Yeah, I like um, I like to share a lot on Instagram. That's my favorite. Um, my name is Doc Kaiser. It's like D O C, and then my name that you can pull off this thing there. Um, yeah, I like to share stuff there. I like to talk about. It's tricky because I like to share the things I'm doing, but I also like to give patients anonymity. Um, so we have to try to find some creative ways around that sometimes. But um, I like doing that, and then I have a website as most people do. Um, it's Doctor D R kaiser.com and so if you're kind of looking for more in-depth on like if you wanted to actually come make the trip to chelsea um that's kind of a better place for that and then i have um um what's cool about that is it puts you in touch with claire who um has a huge depth of knowledge in neurology and is able she's um claire's my wife and she is she's a, a chiropractic neurologist as well but she um works more on the administrative side and she kind of helps people understand she does a lot of conversing with people about like, is this going to be a good fit? Like we pull the medical records and we start to look at things and we really analyze deep before people come. Um, we want to make sure people come here they, that we feel we've got a good opportunity to be able to help them. And she really manages that for people and gives them, um, um, she's just really good at, at, at talking to people. So I give her a lot of credit for that. Um, Which is important in this field, right? I mean, a lot of people just need to be heard. <laughs> yeah. And it's amazing that, yeah. That's what, awesome. What a little bit of that will do, I think, is, is really brilliant. So um, for for people that practice out there, having people, like, don't skip that part. Don't it's one of the biggest part. parts of it. You, you know, just connect with people and just be people together. You know, just be like two humans talking to one another. And, if you know, just try to help them solve problems. problem. I think that that's, that's super helpful for us. Oh, well, that's so great. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on today. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Dr. Kaiser, this was great. I learned something. I think our audience learned something. They know where to find you. They know about your book. Thank we you. may tap into you for future episodes too with some specific questions. I would so. love that. And I learned um, 5.30 sundown is not, this is not the location for that. Because I'm getting blasted with sun the whole time. So I appreciate you. <laughs> Well, again, thank you for listening. We'll put in all the show notes um, links to Dr. Kaiser's website and social media. Um, the Reflex app that we were talking about earlier, we'll be sure to include all those details and we hope to hear from you guys soon. Have a great night. Good night, everyone. Thank you very much. If you're interested in finding us on social media or the web, you can visit www.vestibular.today for more resources, including testing, treatment, and educational videos blogs, continuing education classes, and resources including clinic equipment recommendations, suggested tests, and BPMBV treatment charts. 
Search Vestibular Today and Balancing Act Rehab on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Also, be sure to check out Balancing Act Rehab at www.balancingactrehab.com, especially if you think you would benefit from vestibular therapy. We are your girls. The information on this podcast is not intended to replace the care provided by your qualified health professional or to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on Talk Dizzy to Me. Please contact us at Balancing Act Rehab if you think you could benefit from vestibular therapy.